Hey, what's up, everybody? This is the relaunch of the Badass Asian Dudes podcast. My name is Sabo Shen, and I have two of my other co-hosts here with me. I want to introduce to you Brandon Scott Chen. Brandon, can you say hello? Hey, how's it going, Badass Asian Dudes? Oh, thank you. I'm doing well. I hope you're doing well, too. And I also want to introduce our other host. We got Victor Ung, who also hosts the Human Up podcast, but he'll be joining us today, co-piloting and making sure that we stay on track. Victor, can you say hello to everyone? Yo, yo, what's up? All right, I like it. Victor is still in freestyle mode, throwing out the yo-yos. <laughs> um, we had a freestyle session last night, and maybe um, we could introduce our, or maybe our next guest will actually join us in one in the future, but um, let me stop stumbling around with my words. Uh, we have, uh, oh, this is a big one. This is a big one. I've been very excited. Like, I, I could see him blushing already. Um, his name is Calvin Sun. Calvin Sun was on the original Bad Podcast. His episode was one of my favorite episodes. Um, this man is multifaceted. He is what I like to call the definition of a badass Asian dude. I don't want to say I have a man crush on him, but in many ways, you know, like if my mom was here, they'd be like, Calvin is the son that I wish I had. So I want to make my mom happy. This is Mother's Day. Let's give a big uh, warm welcome to Calvin's son. Thank you. Woo! Woo! <laughs> Hey, Bo. I mean, happy Mother's Day to everyone out there. I am just a normal guy. Your mom and dads would hate me uh, because uh, I am the definition of the rebellious badass Asian guy. I'll, t I'll, t I'll keep the badass title. I like that one. Um, but yeah, I was episode number nine for those of you who are listening. Nine is my favorite number. That's how I remember it. And it's good to be back and with the triple threat. Uh, we miss Chris. But I think this is in good hands now uh, with already the first one minute in. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So um, for those that don't know Calvin's son, he is an ER doctor. He's actually been on the front lines out in New York um, taking shifts. And um, I actually saw him on CNN. It really made me really proud. In addition to being an ER doctor, he also um, writes a blog called The Monsoon Diaries. So, um, you know, for those that haven't had the pleasure of listening to episode nine, Forget it. Just listen to this episode. We're relaunching. This is where all the good stuff's going to come out. So, Calvin, um, I had also read that you spent time, I believe, as an MTV VJ, too. So I think for all these badass Asian dudes that are listening, you know, they really want to know how did this man become a world traveler, an ER doctor, and an MTV VJ? Can you give us a little, little synopsis of, of how you got to where you are today? Well, it's kind of ironic that you're saying all this stuff and I'm listening to it. I'm like, that was not me at all. Uh, and, I, and I'm like, who is this guy? And then I realized you are talking about me. And what I mean by that is that when I was growing up, I was the definition of the nerdy, shy, introverted, emo, Asian kid that was picked on and bullied all my life with two tiger parents who didn't even give me a choice whether I could be an engineer, doctor, or banker or a scientist, I just had to be a doctor. That's that were my parents. And if you don't believe me, just go to my Zanga that's still up in public. Zanga, uh, shout out to Zanga. You gotta yeah, be uh, in a certain era uh, to know Zanga. I'll say it right now, Soho, like the neighborhood, soho.zanga.com. Yep, it's still up. Nice, <laughs> I love it. Back as far as 2002, where I wrote how I went to SAT prep school every Saturday during the school year, and then music school right afterwards, that same Saturday, every Saturday, since fifth grade to 12th grade. And on top of that, during the summers, I would write Monday to Thursday, I would be going to Saturday, um, 
uh, Hawk One and SAT prep schools uh, from Monday to Thursdays during the summers. I never had summer vacation. I never went to summer camp. I have played two hours of piano every day after school, uh, Mondays to Fridays, on top of the music school every Saturday. And that was my life. And I would just find any way to survive, breathe, get out, rebel. And these are all first world problems. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't want to sound ungrateful. Like my parents, you know, took care of me. They educated me. I had a roof over my head. I didn't have to worry about, you know, you know, surviving the streets or putting food on the table. But we were still working class and we tried to get by and they scraped by just so I can have an education. I'm grateful for that. But I didn't have that emotional language that most other parents and guardians, if you don't have parents, um, teach you for me to navigate how, like my emotions about how, why, how, why I was so angry being Asian American, that I wish I was some, someone else. I wish I was like my, my white friends or black friends, Latino or brown, black and brown friends uh, who, you know, they had their own struggles, but they were also able to be more open about their feelings and, you know, what was wrong outside. I noticed that even in the beginning. And it's, it's a different kind of repression, suppression. And uh, right now to see the journey looking back uh, 15, 20 years later since that Zenga, I, I'm just, let's, let's go into this. Let's see how I got from A to Z. Oh, I just did a Google on you and I found a TED Talk. Oh, uh, yeah. Take the path of more resistance. It sounds like that's exactly what you did. Yeah, uh, I, I, I have to credit with learning a lot from my peers and uh, my brother, my old, I have an older half brother, which is essentially my brother, same father, different mothers, and a series of traumas uh, that happened early. So for a lot of people uh, would ask, what's your inflection point? What happened when you get from two tiger parents to you know, where you are right now, where you're so outspoken? I have to say that I'm still that shy, introverted, emo you know, kid deep down, but it's these layers and layers of things that I've created for myself partly as a self-defense mechanism, but also because I actually enjoy it. Like, just like you would enjoy a vacation, you can't go on a vacation forever. Sometimes you need to go home. But if you go home too long, you want a vacation again. My external cartoon character vibe that you see is because of taking the path of more resistance. It's constantly throwing myself into uncomfortable situation, making a habit of that after a series of traumas. And that inflection point was when my dad died of a sudden heart attack. And then my mom got Parkinson's or got formally diagnosed a week later. And my girlfriend at the time broke up with me at my father's funeral. What? Yeah, that wow. was that's oh, not my thing. Wow, dude. I wrote about that. It was that, that was I would I had say that that was both the worst and best summer of my life. And a reason why I say that is because that is the reframing, the cognitive reframing, how I choose to perceive that summer. I can choose to say, oh, that was the worst summer ever. That all these things happened. I never want to go through that again. My life sucks. I'm angry at the world fuck the world, fuck everything. Or I can choose to worship or believe in this is an opportunity. It is a terrible, most difficult summer, but where can I get something out of it where I can you know, build my life back up again? Oh, wait a minute, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I, my father's no longer breathing down my back. I'm not arguing with somebody every day of my life, you know, being beaten physically, which is what he used to do. Uh, and then having my mom back him up and not feeling, you know, now it's on my own, which is difficult. And then, you know, I have to say that a lot of my friends stepped in as well. The opportunity came in where, a, you know, a bunch of my friends and a French girl who was visiting New York City that summer literally swooped in and saved my life. And it ended up being also the best summer of my life. And that's how I choose to perceive that. So you get to have that choice to worship what you want to believe in. And, and, and was that pre-med school or 
um, like when, when did this kind of happen as far as like the continuum of, of your education? It was uh, summer of 2006. My dad died June 10th, 2006. And I was between sophomore and junior year of college. I had already finished all my pre-med requirements because my dad forced that on me. And I was deciding what to major in because I'd finished most of the pre-med requirements. I was like, what's the easiest way to check off that box that I finished my major requirements? And I was like, biochemistry. I don't know what biochemistry meant. To this day, I took a whole course on biochemistry, major in biochemistry. I still don't know what biochemistry really means. If the, te- if the final exam was just one question, it's like, what does biochemistry mean after one year taking it? I would have failed that exam uh, because I just wanted to get by. But then after he died, I was like, you know what? I don't want to be a doctor. I just want to check that box off, be done with my major requirements and do everything else but science or medical school. And that's when I you know, took a class called Mafia Movies. I took a class called Weapons of Mass Destruction. I, I just went to town. I didn't do well in my classes. All my science classes afterwards just nosedived. And I even asked myself, would I rather graduate summa cum laude, which I had pretty good scores at the time because my dad was still alive and like breathing down my back. Would I rather graduate cum laude, summa cum laude, whatever you want to call that, or president, vice president of my class? And I chose the latter. And that's exactly what I did. I chose that lifestyle where I would go in being student council, person plus president of the Asian American Alliance, uh, running the bartending agency, uh, a, break, a hip hop dancer on you know the school dancing. I just did all of that stuff. I was already doing this stuff when my parents were still alive, but I had to keep that a secret from them. Now, after he died and my mom got sick, it was just like, fuck it, just do whatever you want, living with her parents. I went to town and being really open about my life and I was very happy. And, I, and I, that's when I decided in that happiness, I don't want to be a doctor because that's what my dad wanted not what I wanted. Wow. Damn. Well, Vic- I got Victor, goosebumps, man. I Just, thought you were going to ask a question and I think I cut you off. Did you have a question you wanted to ask? No. Yeah. I mean, this is the other thing with having like four people on one call. It's like who to talk, but uh, I, I really appreciate and, and yeah, just appreciate that mentality that you have uh, Calvin. And I think there's that there's something about, you know, that definition of what a badass, especially what badass Asian dude is, is, is really having that perspective of like, well, we have our own, we have a, like, we can perceive how we want to perceive our, our previous, you know, our histories and, and use it productively. Um, and then to be just like, you know, have that more social and emotional intelligence to, to really navigate that. Like, Actually, and that's what I really appreciated in listening to your story is, you know, that, you know, you think about being a doctor, being an entrepreneur, it's like, oh, you got to have this like very smart and education, you got to have all this knowledge. But what I heard from that story is a lot of that emotional intelligence too. Was that something that you developed, uh, you know, growing up? Was that something you had more intention around? Um, what was What was that journey like? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I I grew up uh, with, I think there are two to three manifestations of probably, and I'm thinking out loud here. So we're thinking that maybe I'm wrong. So we you might have to edit this. Uh, one thing is I was raised by babysitters. My mom was never around. She was raiding, uh, she was running, sorry. My mom was never around. She was running a motel in uh, New Jersey somewhere just to make ends meet, uh, just like as a manager front desk. 
And my father was running his business up in Milford, Connecticut. Uh, and he was only back in the weekends if he were not even that busy. So my whole time was uh, being raised by Asian babysitters uh, that we found in Chinese newspapers. And um, they were mostly female. And being raised by women, uh, I think, gave me a sense of awareness um, or self-awareness that I think my I mean, I do want a father figure in my life, but I did want a father figure in my life. But at the same time, like having a lot of um, different mothers, I guess, allowed me to see the world in different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Some were great. Some, you know, just were, you know, didn't care. But ultimately, I saw the variety of what it means to, you know, be an Asian woman uh, subconsciously. But I didn't know how to, like, navigate that language. Number two was I always kept a diary since I was six years old. I don't know why that was. It was just something that I felt like, because I was so suppressed by my parents to speak out and because I admired my black and brown friends who had gone through a lot of shit that I, you know, have not uh, given my privilege as an Asian American. Uh, and, but they were so outspoken and they were manifesting that outspokenness, whether it was through hip hop dance or, you know, writing or art. Um, I didn't have that outlet. So the easy thing for me to do was to keep a notebook and start writing because I didn't have the language to talk or be outspoken. I was very shy. I would cry if you'd like take me to a park with other kids. I would cry if you take off my shoes so we can walk on the beach in the sand because I just was not comfortable leaving, you know, my four by four room. And then finally, thirdly was uh, just having more people like my brother, who my brother's completely opposite. His, our dad divorced early and he was a child of divorcee parents since the age of four, I believe. So he had to also learn how to take care of himself. But his mother uh, was more West Coasty. So he's born and raised in Berkeley. And my dad was in Berkeley before he moved to New York City. So West Coast Asian Americans have a different language. Yeah, we <laughs> <They're>, do. <laughs> yeah, you, you all are 20, 30 years ahead of us. That's what my brother would say. You, uh, we're 20, 30. The things you complain about in New York City are things that we dealt with in Berkeley like 20 years ago. So he, So true. He would visit every like year in the summer. And when he was trying to get to grad school, he would live in the summer because my dad was more of an authoritarian figure. So he actually came to New York City just to live with me and my dad so he could feel the wrath of my dad to motivate him to take the GREs. Because he otherwise was a very smart, but sort of lazier, you know, Berkeley dude, just like, maybe I should like do something in my life. It'll um, happen. It'll happen. You know, it'll, it'll just happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he took 10 years. I mean, first of all, problems, but he took 10 years to get his PhD where everyone else got took to five years. So, but that's the thing. Like he, that's why he went to, before all that, he went to the New York City just so my dad can motivate him to kick ass in the GRE so that he would go to grad school. But he would come in and while he was studying GRE, he's like, teach me what it means to be a West Coast Asian American, to be more outspoken in a world where other people look like you around you and you had more of a safe, brave space. But I, to me, this was foreign. So he just taught me how to be confident. So all that mixed together over time allowed me for this, this understanding that even I didn't have the emotional language, like I didn't know the words, I knew that it was there. And I had to manifest that somehow. But because I was already constantly writing, by the time my dad died from a sudden heart attack after I had gotten an argument with him, I had to write. And that's exactly what I started doing. And that is, people, when I, you get to read your own writings a week or two weeks later, you start to develop more of a self-awareness and it just builds upon that. Yeah, I'm just really excited that you had that outlet that I think a lot of people don't have. And, and you actually took it upon yourself to actually like use that. 
It was the only thing I got. My notebook, my black and white marble. Hey, you know what? Where am I? I'm going to roll my black Oh, and white. here we go. Shit. Second grade. Oh, the, uh, the composition it's... notebooks. <laughs> the original diary because it looks like a chemistry lab notebook. So your parents don't give you shit about it. Yeah. Oh, nice. With all the stickers and everything. Oh, that's when that's you know great. what era you're in. That's awesome, Calvin. <laughs> yeah, this, this, is the, this is the Bible. This is the one that... Uh, Oh, so much angst on it. I could see yeah. it. So for the listeners, he's showing us his physical diary. Photo with of the girls. And with, you know, like real photos, by the way, printed out. And little tidbits. He's showing us his journal, like the, the seed of who Calvin D's son would become. <laughs> you know what's kind of weird about this is I've also kept a journal for a very long time. And I think I've secretly always wanted to be an artist. But, you know, I just... I had, you know, I knew like my dad wanted to be a businessman or s something, you know, in the traditional Asian realm. But, you know, I, I did, you know, w once you said like that was kind of your only outlet, like it kind of like triggered like a memory in me. It was just like, I think that's why I wrote in my journal so much, which was I was looking for some sort of outlet, you know, like being a musician or a rapper like that, that I knew like my parents would just never go for anything like that. So you know, I just thought I just kept a journal, but now I started to realize like I, I was trying to express myself in some way, but um, didn't have an outlet and decided to just journal instead. Unfortunately, I didn't keep any of those. I, I would love to be able to see like what uh, middle school Sabo was writing about, but that's so awesome that you, you had that in all those photos too. You just said something there that I think, um, I'm, let me evolve that then. Expression, I think what Asian Americans have in common especially Asian American men is this, this desire for self-expression, but we don't have the tools or language yes. that we would have usually relied on through our parents or our community to give us like we, maybe we are artists, but no one's giving us paintbrushes to, or canvas to paint that. Right. People have, you know, other communities, other families, non-Asian Americans will have music, we'll have hip hop, we'll have, street art will have you know a tradition of art or making some asian american men a lot of us are trying to figure that canvas but we don't we don't have the tools our tools are sat books to be the best we can be and keep your head low and don't actually express yourself and don't be outspoken i mean asian american women as well um but i think since this is for men here in the space that we have i can only speak to what my experience as a man was was it was very difficult for me to find anything but what was available. And luckily, because luckily, because what, what a weird word to use. My parents were forcing me to study all the time. I had a pen and paper. I had notebooks. You know, These are black and white notebooks. These are not like, you know, cool little leather bound. They're not moleskins, right? Skin. They're not like, let's go to the art store, Vic, Calvin and Victor, and we're going to set you up with nice pastels so you can express yourself. That's a Berkeley fucking thing to say. You know, we're going to help you cultivate your inner Calvin, right? It's like, oh, what do I got? I got my black and white notebooks with my vocabulary words in the back. Uh, let me write something. I think Sable said something that made, like, made me realize, like, we're all, I think people who are listening right now, we're all searching for that way of expression. And we're all doing this right now. You're podcasting. Look, everyone here has sexy-ass microphones. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> It's not even plugged in, actually. It's just, you know, this is just a look. I thought I had to look professional. That's <laughs> also important, too. You need that, that look. It's, it makes a difference. A sexy-ass microphone. Like, if we had moleskins growing up, 
I think Asian American men will be seen as artistic. Or I mean, like there'll be like a movement of that, you know, more so. We all need something. We're just not yeah. even given that opportunity. Can, can yes. I say this? I've I've delved into that question so hard, right? And the the best answer I could come up with, I just wanted to share and see what you guys think, is that when Asian men came over during the uh, gold rush to work, they had to leave women behind. And so they didn't come as complete units. They came and they only had guys and they only had outlets of like maybe prostitution or gambling. They didn't have anything because you could get deported if you didn't have your physical papers on you. So there's this embedded fear of any authority, right? Always checking you. So if you do express yourself and they made us cut our hair unless you wanted to get taxed. So you couldn't express yourself through your hair, or your appearance, because you were physically, you know, chosen to to pay like a tax. So you just got to repress, and then that just becomes the best strategy you have, and you're just in survival mode. And that's and that, the. Go ahead. No, and that trauma is embedded in DNA. This is where my doctor hat comes on. Is that yes. if you are going through some kind of trauma, you're constantly repressing yourself every minute of the day, and that stretches to years. It's in your DNA when you pass your genes on to your children and they incorporate that. That's, that's why people who survive, families who survive famines, like the Irish potato famine, all those people have higher BM, all their children, sorry, have higher BMIs because the DNA incorporate that famine. Like, oh my God, they're starving all the time. Maybe we should just have a higher BMI for the next kid so that, that like, they can take in food more. And that's why their kids of, uh, the, or the children of families and famines end up being larger than normal because the, the body just learns to keep adipose tissue for longer for store that energy. That's the same thing with repression. It's mental health is also encoded in your DNA. And then finally, what all the jobs that Asian men had when they immigrated, they were only allowed. I mean, other than the stereotype of railroads, but other, but in urban areas, like there's nannies, laundromats, restaurants, they were not allowed anything in the business department. Feminine role, things that were considered yes. Western lens as feminine, where mm -hmm. we're finding in a Western context, we're living in a United States, that the Western land that's seen as feminine and an Asian man in a foreign world being seen as feminine when they're like, no, this is a man, but also not allowed to see, do anything else. That's also encoded. And you've been generations and generations. It, that basically, if you're listening to this, it's not your fault. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. We picked the right guest today, guys, because I thank you for, because you come from a place of scientific evidence-based authority, but you're also a person. And I think it's going to satisfy the listeners on both ends, right? He's, you're an authority, but you're also, you've gone through the experience. This yeah. is important for our listeners to, to know that you're not alone. It's not your fault. And that this is a thing. If you acknowledge it, it's a thing. It's a starting point. Where you start, and it's not that it's not anyone's fault. It's not like some bad white man or uh, non-Asian man is out to get you. They're all dead by now. The ones who create those institutions, those institutions. You could be angry at institutions, but to take it out on other humans, other people who also may be brainwashed by these institutions, it's also not their fault. You right. can, and I'm all for fighting institutions, but to like. Put, you know, poke someone's eye out, you know, who, you know, understandably maybe behaving badly, maybe it's a little more sustainable to actually focus on yourself and not being angry at dead white institutions that, you know, put you where, you know, we are right now. You can change those institutions. You can be the person that changes the rules instead of trying to, you know, burn everything down. You know, and then some people believe in that too, but we're, we're, that's an old can of worms. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, okay, so um, not to really shift gears here, but, you know, like one of the things that I always feel very conscious of is like some people will be like, yeah, yeah, well, it's easy for you guys to say because you have done X, Y, Z, or, you know, it's easy for you to talk from this position because, well, you've already gone past this. And, you know, I think one of the areas where I really wanted you to talk a little bit about was, you know, I had heard the story about, you know, you going to medical school and then you had a conversation with the admissions officer and well, I don't want to go too much into it, but it's a really interesting story about essentially like your interesting background is why they accepted you into med school, right? So I'm, I'm, there was actually a whole point why I just ended the first part of my story there because I want the listener to be like, okay, but then he's a doctor. But he just said he doesn't want to go to medical school. We we let that we let, we pause. We, what's that called in Manila Sky or Fight Club? Well, well, cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, that pause. I want people to marinate that because I want the listeners to be like, shit. He he just introduced me as a doctor, but he just said he not he doesn't he didn't decide not to go to medical school. So now let that marinate, and we're gonna go back into it because that's the deal. I want to talk about that. Is that after I graduated college, I promised to never become a doctor. I was like, I'm never gonna be this. I wanted to pursue entertainment. I was already a VJ uh, for the sh- a show called The Freshman on MTVU. It's kind of those shows that nobody really like watched. It's like you're running on a treadmill in the college dorm, and you're like, oh, and it's on mute. It's one of those shows. Um, <laughs> I was very interested in you know pursuing movies. <laughs> and uh, after I graduated college, I the only way to, I could get by, and I decided to like you know rent an apartment with three of my best friends from college in Midtown West on 53rd and 8th. The building was called the Metro. Some of you may know it. And we live in a three-bedroom apartment, paying rent, just doing my thing, my bachelor pad, inviting people over, having fun. And the only way I can get by was becoming a bartender. And some odd jobs is learning how to be a DJ and promoter. Um, and uh, my dad had left the business uh, after he died and me and my brother were trying to resurrect it. So I was learning how to be, you know, some small business owner. Um, but most of my money was coming from bartending. And that was, I was super happy. I worked whenever I wanted. I worked in fun places. I worked wherever I wanted because my skill set, you know, just to be a bartender applied to every bar. Maybe the call brands are located in a different place, but the speed rack was all the same. And I paid off all my, you know, most of my debts and I felt like I was financially independent. And that was it. That's all I wanted to do. And my brother was moving to New York and I was helping him move. Uh, he was like, is this all you want to do with your life? And I said, yeah, fuck yeah, this is awesome. This is everything my dad did not want me to be, and I am so happy. But then after I left, and my brother didn't say anything else, but like after I left, I started asking myself, is this happiness really coming from me? It feels like it. Or am I happy because I'm rebelling against my dad? Mm -hmm. Am I choosing not to become a doctor because of me? or because I'm rebelling against my dad and the Asian American stereotype? What if I'm actually meant to be a doctor this entire time and I'm gonna go to my deathbed 50, 60, 70 years later wondering what could have been and deciding on something because the stereotype and my father compelled me to choose another route. Then they still win. Then they still have a control over me. That stereotype of my father compelled me to not become something because that means they exist. Fuck that. I did not want them to exist any, have any like semblance of my life or impact on my life because I'm the one in charge. But then I was wondering, oh, what if this is reverse psychology? And my dad, you know, put this in my head and he's like doing this from the grave and his spirit is haunting me. <laughs> it was like that poison scene in The Princess Bride where 
you know, two cups uh, between the villain and the hero. Iocane powder. Yeah, Iocane powder. You don't know which one is which, and they constantly switch it. And you don't know which one is which unless you drink it. That's the only way to know. Schrodinger's cat, I guess. And the only way to, for me to know for sure was to actually just take a leap of faith. But I didn't, I didn't have the confidence in that at the time because, as I said, I was still the shy, introverted, scared kid. I was just learning how to become more confident because my brother, bartending and writing and being student counsel, putting myself out there. But I was still that, that inner child was still like afraid of taking that leap of faith until I met a girl at a bar. Every story begins with that one. Always, and tell him that was a girl, huh? <laughs> yeah. I, so th- think about the timeline of things, of how everything is interconnected. I was repressed. All I had was a pen and paper. I started writing. Writing gave me a tool to speak out. My dad died. I, you know, only way to make money at the time and pay off my, my college and everything, become a bartender from the bartending city. I started bartending. Then I went to this whole, you know, dilemma. And then I met a girl. If I weren't bartending, I wouldn't have met her. So one thing led to another that night. And uh, the next morning, I was like, you're super cool. I really want to get to know you better. I don't want this just to be, you know, I'm never going to see you again. And she's like, I really like you too, but I'm going to Egypt for a month. So we'll just catch up when you, uh, when you're, if you're still around or when I come back. And I was like, sure, that's fine. Have fun in Egypt. But I was like, that's really funny you saying that because two of my other friends are also going to Egypt at the same time you are. They had just mentioned that. You should meet them. So I violated the New York City rule of no morning after coffee and no morning after brunch because then it means something. <laughs> but I said, fuck it. It's That's a rule? I didn't know that. It is. And if you buy any okay. morning after coffee or brunch, it means something. Oh, and, and then sex in the city to, stuff. You have to commit. But I really liked her. I really liked the, the whole the, the vibe that we were getting about this whole like Egypt thing. And I was like, you have to meet other friends. And I always regret if I didn't make that connection. So that morning after turned this one long day, like she stayed. Uh, and then she eventually met them later that night and um, they all clicked and they all got along. They're like, this is awesome. We're all going to have fun in Egypt. And three of them were going to you know, meet up. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then they turned to her and they said, Calvin, you, you, you introduced us. You have to come too. You're a bartender. You just take off. And I'm like, no, like I don't like to travel. Uh, I'm a born and raised New Yorker, never left the city. Uh, I, I think traveling is a waste of money and time because I'm a New Yorker. What's the point if the whole world's going to come to me anyway? You know, if I want to go to Egypt, I go to Steinway Street in Little Cairo, you know, on the end train. If I want to go to Chinatown, I go to China. I mean, you know, if I want to go to, you know, it's just like, that was my view of traveling. And it was like, they were like, don't be a brat. <laughs> just, just come with us. I did like her a lot. So I did check ticket prices, you know, secretly. And there were 2000 <laughs> <laughs> of course I did. Uh, it was $2,000 and I didn't have that kind of money. And I was like, no, it's too expensive. Look, see, I had it saved the whole time. Don't worry. I, was, I thought about it. Uh, take us $2,000. It's too much. Thank you. Have fun. And they're like, what would it take? And I was like, fine. I'll go if tickets are like under $700 round trip before tonight, like the end of tonight, which is impossible. I said that as a joke to just get them off my back. So I just had to get them something. And we kept hanging out. It was a great night. And then one thing, you know, you know, more drinks. And then last call, four o'clock in the morning. And we got up and we left and we kept, you know, refreshing it. That was a joke. Still $2,000. And then they were like, come on, just check one more time. And I checked again. It was still $2,000. And then I checked again. I was like, guys, just give me back my phone. And I checked one more time as we were leaving. And it was $650. And I'm like, oh, shit. shit. Serendipity. <laughs> 
it was a great deal. So of course I'm going to say yes to the, regardless if I was drunk or not. But <laughs> a good so, deal. That's a good deal. Great deal. So 651 was 2000 earlier. So basically, you know, autofill, you just click on your first name and first, and then just fills out your credit card information. That was a new thing at the time and it, it made things much easier. The next morning I woke up, uh, they had just left. I was taking a, a later flight than they were and they had texted me. He's like, we're looking forward to picking up the airport. Don't worry. One of the people that was going is Egyptian and she's a local. She's like, don't worry. I'll take care of you. I'll host you. My family will cook dinner for you. You buy everything there and eat, buy your backpack in Egypt. Everything's cheaper in Egypt. We'll just pick in the airport and we'll just start from there. Just bring a wallet and yourself. Uh, and then, so I did. And then a few hours later, I took, I took a flight which was eventful on its own. But then when I landed, that's another story. A, a passenger like passed out and like need, needed a medical assistance. And I got involved. Everything was fine, but that was just like, what the fuck? I used that for my med school interviews. Um, oh, another story, it's just, just too many tangents. I landed and they picked me up from the airport and they're like, holy shit, we realized where your tickets were so cheap. And I'm like, why? Well, what was going on in Egypt 10 years ago? This was 10 years ago. Uh, it was going down. What was going down in Egypt 10 years ago? I don't know. I'm not a historian. Victor, Brandon, step up. <laughs> Actually, I know that there was a lot of conflict, right? The Stargate was opening. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it, was, it was the beginning of the Arab Spring, or like it was just at the winter of 2010, uh, uh, around January. Yeah, it was just starting to, you know, brewing. I have one photo of it. Um, one of the people I was with was like, I'm going to join, you know, you can't stay with me. Uh, my family's not really, um, yeah, totally understandable. Uh, my best friend at the time was like, my flight changed, something happened. I have to like, leave a few days earlier. I have to leave to Israel to get back home. And the girl's like, I'm not going to like hang out with some, my, well, I want to hang out with you. But the girl's like, my strict Indian family is not going to let me hang out with some boy I met at a bar. And you know, I didn't realize that it was a family trip. And uh, that's another story. So I did actually end up finding her, but with her family. But what was supposed to be three weeks together with friends ended up being me alone. And they were like, you know what? Like Calvin, we were going to hang out with you with one night uh, to show you around. But then the next morning we're going to have to go. And uh, because we do feel bad. And uh, to basically a long story short, um, they had left me in the Cairo train station the next morning. And uh, they were like, are you going to be okay? Are you sure you're going to be okay? I'm going to be fine. And then I was alone. And I literally decided that I should like go back that, that day because I didn't know anybody. Nobody knew me. I wasn't prepared. Um, and cut three hours of me walking in circles in the Cairo trade station. I decided to say, fuck it. If I leave, there's a 100% chance I'll live and a 100% chance I'll regret it. If I stay, there's a 20% chance I'll live, but a 100% chance I won't regret it. Uh, and I buy a one-way ticket to Alexandria um, and then got there at three o'clock in the morning. And uh, everybody on the train was like, what are you doing here? It's not safe. I mean, you're all alone. You're not prepared. Where's your backpack? And I was just like, you know what? Like, I'm here to go sightsee. I'm here to see the Alexandria Library. The lighthouse is saying shit. And they were like, the lighthouse burned down like centuries ago. <laughs> the the, the, the <laughs> library was sacked by the Romans or whatever. Alexander the Great. They were like, it, they're both gone. They're all, it's not, it's a beautiful city, but like those things that you're here to see are just, you just did not do your research. But they gave me, they felt bad. They gave me a couple of addresses. They taught me a little bit Arabic. And then I started knocking on doors uh, when I arrived. Actually, I arrived at the train station and I was too scared to even cross the street. 
And I kind of crossed it, ran back, took a cab, and I gave the cab the address of doors to knock on. And he was like, are you sure? I was like, yeah. And he literally drives across the street and then lets me out. <laughs> That's of course. He's like, and I'll drive you. Yeah, I'll, dr- I'll drive you right there. Uh, it was really embarrassing. But the first week, I literally was, was every minute was not knowing what the next minute was supposed to happen. And it was like, I'm going to die. 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 The second week, I was like, oh, I'm getting the hang of this. It was not until the third week, I was like, oh, I get it. This is why people travel. You know, this is why people travel so much. They love it. It's the only time they learn how to become their own best friends again, to rely on themselves without having the conveniences of home. And, you know, we don't have to worry. When you wake up at home, those of you listening, you don't have to worry about, oh, where do I, you know, get my coffee? Where do I eat? Where do I sleep? Where do I, you know, but when you're traveling, you don't have all those habits available to you, all those routines. You don't know when the next dinner is going to be. You don't know where you're going to stay. I mean, the way I travel, right? The way we, you know, in, in Egypt was, I didn't know where I was going to sleep every night. Um, and that you have to basically start over again and get to learn about yourself and build yourself up again. And that is when I learned the emotional, you know, intelligence of becoming my own best friend, loving myself, saying that, you know what, it's been three weeks and all you had to yourself good going, man. Like you do have what it takes to be in you. You don't need anyone else. You are a fucking badass. So keep going. You have everything. Now you have visual confirmation that you have everything that you need to survive the apocalypse or whatever is the relative apocalypse. And everyone's like listening. He's like, he was backpacking to Egypt, probably Instagramming. This is before Instagram. Uh, (laughs) No, for me, relative to what I was before, never traveled before. And to be alone internationally, during some t- tense times by myself, didn't know the language, didn't prepare, didn't know anyone, no one knew me, da, 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 was a relative apocalypse for me. It's like trauma. Like when my dad died, I lost everything. Traveling is a more of a controlled trauma. It's a fun-ish way of losing everything and building yourself back up again. Well, actually, that's what I'm like super, I love that story. And thank you for sharing that. I think that what I hear out of that though is you there was something in you to have to like to take that step in the first place to just say, I am going to go to Egypt without a backpack and then stay there. Uh, you know, and this reminds me as I was listening to the other episode of, you know, what I really liked what you said was um, seeking failure versus then to just quit. Right. So I think that's a common theme for you is really just, you have to go experience it Uh before before even saying that it's not for you or that you won't want to do that you know i'm sure that's probably gonna spark a lot of things for you to say (laughs) and i think just to clarify it's constantly seeking the path of more resistance but you i didn't need motivating factors right one was a very pretty girl girls really liked motivated always the women yep um and i blogged about that by the way so if any of you are curious you know we're up there on my blog. Uh, and number two was, I'm a man of my word. If I promise or I make a bet that I said, I will go if tickets are under $700. If I say that, if I verbalize that out to you, right? And it ends up being under $700, I have to follow through. Because if I don't, that's a subconscious message to myself that I can't trust myself. Mm-hmm. So I had yeah. to own it up to myself by saying, I have to do something if something happens. And if that something does happen, I have to follow through because the way you do one thing in life is the way you do everything in life. And the girl helped, but you know, it's, you sometimes need that motivating factor. You sometimes need something to compel you to be in a position if 
it seems like, oh, the harder thing, you know, is too daunting. You kept your promise to yourself, that small little promise. That is super important to the subconscious. I love how you said that. Thank you. Because that, that's, that's the connecting element. Of all people listening, they kind of missed that part. And it was like, oh, so I just do the hard thing. So, you know, I kind of needed help. I needed these two little factors to like, like roll. And that's what sometimes you need, those little tools to, to get you from, you know, A to Z. It's like the B, C, D, F, G are like pretty girl, bartending, fun friends, Egypt, travel, making a bet to yourself, cheap flights. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, part of what we're trying to do with this badass Asian dude community is to help be that little bit of fire to help, you know, push people in the right direction, because we know a lot of these things, you know, regardless if you just call them first world problems or whatever, you know, like when you're going through them, they're real as fuck, you know, like those problems, you know, are not first world problems like they're in, in, in your version of that life. It is the apocalypse and you do require people like, you know, like, you know, I rely on Brandon a lot to help me, you know, understand understand a lot of somatic and emotional things that I'm going through. And, you know, like, I think without the help of other people, you know, it's really tough to, to do it on your own. And, you know, and I think that's the beauty of this is we want to let people know you don't have to do it on your own and that we are a community. And yeah, you know, individually, we are all badasses, but collectively, you know, it becomes much more unstoppable, much more stronger. And I think this desire to self-express, you know, I read this study on happiness and there was they studied like over it was like a 20-year study and they talked to thousands of people and you know as you can imagine there wasn't a lot of consensus but there was two things that seemed to be present in the people that claimed to be happy and one was they belonged to a group and then two was they contributed something to that group you know and if they had those two things then they would feel some 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 form of fulfillment in their life. And, you know, that's why I'm really glad that you're sharing these stories because I think there's a lot of people, younger folks that are, you know, in that phase where they're trying to figure out what should I do with the rest of my life? You know, it seems like such a important decision where, you know, I think after you've lived some life, you could self-reflect and go, well, you know, that's just a decision, but there's a lot of living and experiencing. There's going to be a lot more decisions that I have to make that will ultimately make me Calvin or Sabo or Victor or Brandon. And I have the caveat though, is that a lot of Asian American men, if there's, they've been given any tool by their parents or by their guardians as Asians, is that you're always supposed to work towards something. You're always supposed to have a goal, whether it's to become a doctor or be successful, or take care of your family or buy them a house. That's the Asian American thing that all of us can ascribe to. And I find that actually toxic for what it means to be happy as an Asian American in this generation. Maybe it worked when you were immigrating, you need to put food on the table and to take care of your family and your kids, that fine, that works for you, grandma. But for us, our struggles are different. When you have a goal in mind and constantly trying to work towards a goal, when we don't have to worry about putting food at the table as much or raise a family after immigrating, that's actually like actually also part of the suppression because life is not a journey. Life is not about trying to achieve goals. Life is actually a dance, All right? When you dance, but when you go to a concert, if we go by the former of like, oh, this is how you're supposed to live life, then we, we should go to a concert where everything's the finale and the conductor or the DJ is trying to DJ as fast as possible to the climax within five seconds. Those are the best concerts, right? Up the beat. Those are the best concerts. Is the ones that you're constantly dropping the beat, trying to drive back, and you're just like, I'm like, you know, then you're paying literally paying $500 for five seconds, right? Or the dance, like the best dancers are the ones who dance the fastest. They're trying to dance with the part of the room 
And then the best dances are the ones that are five you know, seconds long. No, when you dance with someone or you meet someone special and you meet your partner and you like fall in love and whatever on the dance floor, you want to la- have that last as long as possible. You want that concert to last as long as possible. Why can't that be applied to life? You should enjoy it in the moment. And that's what I meant when I was going through Egypt was this constant self-awareness where it was traumatic for me. I was scared, but also with self-awareness, like, wait a minute, it isn't so bad. I should enjoy the moment. I'm, I am seeing amazing, beautiful things. And this complexity of this back and forth of good and bad is essentially what life is. And I look back on it as like, I'm really glad I, you know, enjoyed the experience and not tried to see this and see that. And I have to go there and I have, and that's a different kind of travel. Some people love that check, check box traveling. Um, but for me, I, I think you lose a lot in that, uh, in that attitude. And that's why a lot of Asian American men struggle with doing everything right even. And then looking back and I was like, Oh, why am I so unhappy? Why am I so angry? Because you maybe didn't enjoy the dance. That, that super resonates with me actually. Right. And, and I think, um, I'm still uncovering a lot of that myself of like trying to explore and play and just do things just for the hell of it and not say like, Oh, I, you know, this has to apply to something. This has to mean something. This has to secure me something later on. Um, and yeah, so I just, I think I just want to mention that. I think that's something that, you know, we're, it, it's so in, in embedded uh, especially for me as a first born or first generation, you know, Asian American, it's like you have to develop something that you could pass on, you know. But I mean, yeah. this, is, this is true, but the vice is also like not, there's no one size fits all. So if you're the type that kind of is already enjoying your life too much, sitting on the couch and, you know, getting high every day and you never having paid rent for the last five months. Uh, and you know your girlfriend's about to, or your boyfriend, or your partner's about to leave you because you know you haven't like done date night for like two months. He's like, oh, I love quarantine. This advice may not apply to you. Maybe you need to be a little more goal oriented. But if you are, most of you out there who are just super goal oriented and say, why am I missing? I feel like something's missing. Maybe that does that perspective may be beneficial for you. So I just want to be very cautious. Like, oh, Calvin's saying it's great to, to sit around and enjoy life. Yeah, six months in without doing anything right, maybe not. It's a balance. It's a, it's a dance. I, I appreciate the clarification. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, that I think depends. that context, I, I think that context is very good because, you know, I know Victor, Brandon, myself, you know, at different points of our lives, we were all very much goal oriented people. And, you know, then what happens? You, you, you attain your goal and you realize like, wow, you know, like that, the feeling that I was expecting, like, yeah, maybe it was great, but it was only great for one day. And then by day two, day three, day four, the next week, like life just normalizes again. Then you start realizing, whoa, you know, like being goal oriented, like it's great to have that feeling of fulfillment when it happens, but there's so much of life that happens in between those two goalposts, you know, and if you're not enjoying that time in between, and if you're not dancing the way you want to dance and just feeling the emotions and you know, having that perfect symphony of life with the people that are around you. Like, you know, to your point, if, if you're struggling for your next paycheck, you don't know where your next meal's coming from. Yeah, by all means, be goal oriented. But if you got those things and you got that security and you're still wondering why you're not happy, well, it's time to like reassess and look at the different parts of your life and see if like being goal oriented is still serving you or if you need to have a new framework to, to view life with. I learned that actually from Egypt too. Um, that, that night before they dropped me off the train station, 
uh, and I, between when I arrived at the airport and they dropped me at the train station, I was taken to um, the desert where they, I rode a horse for the first time. And uh, they told me only one thing. It's like the, it, like the Egyptian girl who's a local, she's just like, there's one thing to say that you've ridden horses before because you don't want a donkey or pony. So I was, I was like, sure. Okay. So I followed directions. I was like, yeah, I'm an expert in riding horses. He's like, don't say that. But too late. They gave me a wild horse and I, they literally four o'clock in the morning um, when it's pitch black, they cracked the whip, the horse went off and it was my first time riding a horse in the middle of the desert by myself and the horses went nuts and just flew away. And what happened was I was holding on for dear life, never rode a horse and I was like, this is so dangerous. I could fall off, dislocate my shoulder. I'm in the middle of a desert now so nobody's around to take care of me. Didn't sign a waiver. I mean, these are, but the people who are supplying the horses are Bedouins. They live off the grid. So they don't, I don't know. They don't care. They took our money. Um, and I'm holding on to horse. I don't know where I'm going. And then there's a guy behind me that I met at the hostel a few hours before named Eduardo from Colombia. And he was just like, we got to get off this horse. We got to get off this horse. And I was like, wow. I was like, this guy's right. He, he's right. We've never done this before. This is very dangerous. I should maybe do the responsible thing, get off this horse. But I was like, you know what? That also sounds like my dad you know, telling me what to do all the time. I was like, Eduardo, you're not my dad. You sound like my dad, but you're a good guy. And you're a good guy. I know you mean well, but I feel like I have to keep riding, even though I have no idea what I'm doing. And Eduardo actually got off the horse and finally he found a way. But I thought that if I got off the horse, I would fall off. And I just held on for dear life. And literally for 26 minutes of riding by myself, not knowing where to go, which is just like life, it's that dance. You don't know where it might lead you. There's no goal. It's just the only goal is right now, living in the moment, just like to survive this minute. Finally, eventually, I saw a fire in the distance, a figure's pointing, like that's where I needed to ride towards. I was like, okay, finally, after 26 minutes of the unknown, I finally it reveals itself. And that's also like, maybe the, the goal may not be made immediately obvious to you, but eventually if you focus on yourself and take care of yourself, the opportunity will come to yourself. I and mean, what is luck? Preparation plus opportunity. So I was preparing not to die, well, it was 26 minutes and the opportunity of the fire came and I decided to ride towards the fire. And then people kept pointing at me. He's like, come look to your, look, look behind you, look behind you. And I was like, why are they pointing? And then that's when I took this photo. And this is the photo that I took. And oh, man. Master just, storyteller, full circle. It just came to me. I was like, oh, I have it already saved. Literally, I turned around. I saw the sun rising over the pyramids with the sound of the azan, the Muslim call to prayer in the morning fill the night sky and i just like this is the first oh photo. my god this is actually the 10-year photo that went returned back with 17 other people they all cried this is this is five months ago just they for all- our listeners it's like a really beautiful like sunset kind of photo Sun, sunrise like picture a, sunrise yeah kind of a red purple feel with pyramids in the back that looks amazing that was the first one ever- and i knew that's what i was writing towards the whole time but the before, right before i saw this I had no idea what that's what I was writing for. Does that make sense? Like totally. Yeah. And that's when I decided to apply to every single medical school to get out of that decision. When I came back from that, I was like, Oh, sometimes it may not make any sense. This is fucking do it. So I applied to every single med school that I thought I would be, you know, I had money for to get in. Uh, and you know, that I'd be willing to go. So mostly New York urban areas, but also around the country. And the bet was, if I don't get in anywhere, then I could check that box off. No, I'm not meant to be a doctor. And I'll be done with it. And I'll be like, okay, I'm not meant to be a doctor. Everyone else knows this process better than I do. Um, and then I can, you know, be finally at rest. I could start traveling. But if I were to get in, then I have to keep doing it until I hit that wall. And one school took me. And I was like, shit. And it was just like that Egypt bet. 
$700 ticket was $699. Everything is connected. And, that, and because I had a great time in Egypt or came back much more self-actualized, I decided that, you know what, this is a sign from the universe. I will do med school. And I don't want to sound ungrateful. Like many, most people will kill for that opportunity. There are some people who just can't get into med school. But my essay was this store in Egypt and the flight on the way to Egypt. Like because of one thing, it led to another thing that got me into this med school, which actually said is like, you're a terrible student. You did not do well in the MCATs. Your GPA is 3.0. And he kind of also said, you're an Asian American. So it doesn't really work for you. And this is a good card. Minority. <laughs> <laughs> Which I respect. I'm a, I, 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 and a lot of people who are listening who may not agree. I'm a team player. Affirmative action always did not help me, <laughs> actually hurt me. But as an individual, but as a team player, we need affirmative action for uh, black and brown students, women, disabled, um, because I want a diverse classroom. Because if there was no affirmative action, what, what do we have against legacy admissions, athletes? you know, who are predominantly not minorities. Right. Well-funded people. Yeah. So I'm a team player. Obviously, I wish everything could be better and we have to fight for, you know, better representation and something that's better than a Band-Aid. But at the same right now, I'm a supporter of it. But when I got to med school, I was like, what the fuck? I, I, I got in because of my stories. They said, we loved your Egypt story and we're taking a bet on you. We are tired of having uh, doctors commit suicide at twice the national average, at a rate twice the national average because of their mental health is just not being adequately, you know, supported or they burned out through med school or eight years of no socializing. We want to see if we can do humanities and medicine. We want people, you know, good people first to learn how, because you can be a good person first and then learn the material. You can't sacrifice humanity, learn the material and then learn how to be a good person again. So I was at risk that they were taking. I eventually just told me I was the imposter. Everyone has these imposter syndrome. What if you had the imposter syndrome and then be confirmed by the authority that got you in that said, you, yes, you are the imposter that got in through the back door. That was, that's, that's a lot. That's what a, lot a lot fucking it. mind fuck, dude. Yeah. Like that is, but you're, what you said, like being a good person and then entering instead of just running blindly towards this goal somebody told you is important. You walk in as the person you are and you say, yes, this is important. I choose this. Yeah. Well, with my, ma- with my expectations being managed because day right. one, they showed a, a normogram of all the MCAT scores and GPAs. Like We're the most accomplished, smartest class that we've ever accepted. Uh, and there was one dot at the very bottom that was like the outlier. And I was like, wait a minute, that, that numbers look familiar. They kind of match. Oh, that's me. I am the outlier. <laughs> And uh, I mean, I didn't let them down. I did end up graduating bottom 50% of my class. I almost failed out three times. They rounded me up from 67.56 to 68. Uh, I, you know, did really poorly on my board scores. Uh, did even worse on the makeup. I failed. <laughs> this was terrible. I was not a great student. Um, but they kept on saying, like, we are, you know, you may not become a doctor, but you're happy and you're class president and you do so much work for us and people believe in you. Um, I remember only one school took me. So the part of the bet was even this one school and many schools, I keep doing it until I can't any further. And a lot of people are asking, well, how'd you get into become a, get into residency to become a doctor? Because, you know, my, my step one score, this is the licensing exam. 
that every med school student has to take. You have to do like at least a two, get at least a 230 to be competitive. I got a 212. So it's not a bad score, but it's just like my med school is like, because it's so competitive nowadays at that time, that climate, you need at least 230 for us to feel comfortable. I, I got a 212. Well, luckily there's a step two, a second exam that you take a year afterwards. They were like, fine, just do better in step two. And we'll, you know, do at least get, you know, better than 212. And we'll see, we'll say that you're learning, you're getting better. And I worked my ass off. I cried. I, it was one of the worst, you know, first world problems, but worst month of just like forcing myself to study when I'm not a very good studier. And I got a 204. I did worse. <laughs> it's, it was two or three to pass, which is actually even worse because once you pass, you can't retake it. If I had failed, I could actually have another chance of retaking it. So they're just like, forget it, man. You're not going to get in. And I was like, you know what? Fine. I'll keep doing it until I can't get any more. And this is already after I almost failed out twice and they rounded me up. Um, and then uh, I met, and there's this dean of students, uh, sorry, uh, dean of medicine. Uh, sorry. The department chair of medicine. He's like the big dog, uh, Dr. Salafu, who interviews every single medical student and writes them, a, a, you know, a recommendation later based just in five minutes per student. It's like standard. And everyone has to schedule an interview with him. So I got scheduled and I'm like, oh, he's going to laugh at me after like meeting with all my other classmates who are way smarter and more accomplished and more motivated or seemingly more motivated than I am. And he saw my resume, he saw my GPA and everything and my transcript and I walked in and he, he, he was just like, holy shit. He looked at me and he was just like, you remind me of me. And this is when I thought he was just going to laugh at me and throw me out. He's like, you remind me of me because do you know how I got this job? Not because I was the smartest person in the room or the hardest working, but because I believed in my community. I believed in leadership, serving my class. I was, you know, I knew how to read people in a way that books never taught me. And that's what it seems like from your application, your, the way you write, your stories, the things you've done for your class. The, recommend, the other recommendations from other you know, faculty is like, he may not be the best student, um, but he does read people well and he lived in med school. He was inspiration for our classmates and he was reelected uh, and he really devoted his life's work and during med school to ensuring the well-being and welfare of his class uh, over his like personal study, which we think is you know, important in leaders in medicine which is exactly what he wrote for me. He's like, I want to support your application. And it was because of his letter that stood out. I got interviews. I didn't get in because of it, but I got interviews. But once you get interviews, you get your foot in the door. And when I finally got interviews for residency, they actually actually challenged me again. They were like, you are not meant to be a doctor. What makes you think you want to keep doing this? You're not sure. I read your blog. It doesn't seem like you have any idea. Uh, we know that you took a bet on this. And remember, I didn't give up anything this whole time. The part of the bet was to do med school if I got in and not sacrifice anything else during this time. I would still be traveling, which I did. I would still be bartending, which I was. So when I, by the time I got there four years later at the interview and they asked me why I want to still do this to become an ER doctor, uh, that's the specialty you choose if you don't know what you want to do or you like everything or you like nothing. Uh, and I chose being an ER doctor. And I told him the truth because I was still bartending. I never sacrificed that. I was like, you know what? I'm still a bartender. One of my favorite jobs. And being an ER doctor is exactly like being a bartender. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, you're behind a row of computers in the ER. Anyone who steps behind that row of computers, you have to call security to throw them out. Just like an ER and just like in a bar. Right? You step <laughs> behind my bar, I'm working out. Uh, 
you're good enough to be thrown out, right? You're walking towards me. You're healthy enough to walk towards me and, you know, demand more drinks. Nope. Uh, you have to deal with the same kind of people, the belligerent, the drunks, the down and out, the ones who need you the most, uh, sometimes the exact same clientele. Uh, you got to move as fast as possible. You got to make everyone love you in those five minutes you have with them before you move on to the next one. You can't move too quickly because people feel like you may not be paying attention to them. You can't move too slowly either because there's so many other people waiting for to be cared for. And you, the one who's interviewing me, you're like my bar manager. You don't, you don't do anything. You make us do all the work and you just go around the ER saying, hey, how are you liking my ER? Give this guy a Tylenol in the house before he goes. Make sure he gets a work note before he goes. And people who interviewed me were like, that was the best damn answer I ever heard to that question. And I got the job and I became a resident. Oh, man. Yep, just flying blind. And I didn't realize until three years into my residency, so about four years ago, when I woke up one day, I was like, this is exactly what I wanted to do. That fire in the distance while horseback riding 25, 25 minutes later into the unknown. Take those 25 minutes, expand that to six, seven years before the fire burns in the distance. And I woke up one day, third year residency, and I'm like, oh, I get it. This is what I wanted to do. Still bartending, still traveling, but now culminating into becoming an ER doctor. And that's when they almost kicked me out again. They sent me a letter, the residency program saying, we did believe in you. You are different, but it seems like you care more about traveling and non-medicine stuff. When everyone else is doing research papers and presentations, it seems like you're very you know, capricious and you're not sure if you want to be a doctor. And this is just when I decided that I was like, oh, I'm exactly, this is exactly what I want to do. It's always that irony when you realize that that challenge comes in. That, that letter is posted on my blog. Uh, they threatened to kick me out. So it's like, we recommend that you focus 100% on your patients and being an ER doctor and put off traveling until after all this is over, or we'll transition you out, aka kick me out, so that you can you know, fulfill your life of becoming a, you know, a travel blogger, community you know, leader or whatever. And I had one more year left before I graduated. So what I did was not, and I'm, you know, I'm never good at following the rules for anyone. I'm not good with, after my dad died, I've never been good at like listening to what people tell me in resistance to my father. But I also respect what they were worried about. So you, there's always an option C. You don't have to choose black and white. You don't have to choose the, this or that. The life is different shades of gray. So what I did was I blocked all of them on social media. All my superiors, all the doctors, all the people who emailed me who were worried about me, they all got blocked on social media. They were still friends, but to them, it's just showed I stopped traveling. And I still traveled. And then three months <laughs> later, I got resident of the block and I became the wellness director slash chief. Oh, man. Well, you know what I really loved about all of those stories is that even though you said you were flying blind, I feel like you were still following what what Calvin wanted to do. You know, even if you didn't know what the big picture is, you kind of knew, hey, I like bartending. I like medical school. I like traveling. And I'm going to do all those things. And that's also the great part, which is, you know, you don't have to be defined by one thing. You know, like Brandon is a strength and conditioning coach. He's also a sex and relationship coach. You know, these are two like very like opposite side ends of the things. And, you know, like I myself, you know, I'm a cannabis entrepreneur but I'm also very front and present on the PTA. You know, I was the president three years ago. So, you know, I really like kind of featuring people that could show all these different facets. And, 
you know, we are kind of coming um, to the top of the show or the top of the hour for the show. So, you know, I, I really appreciate you spending all this time with us. And I would actually, I mean, there were so many tangents to these stories that you didn't, you weren't able to get into. So I would love it for you to come back on the show in the future. Uh, I'm here all day. My three o'clock got canceled, so I can talk for hours. <laughs> well, you know, we wanted to kind of keep these consistent to about an hour just so that the people understand. But, you know, I did want to not just cut this off um, kind of abruptly, but, you know, start start thinking about like, hey, you know, like we've told all these stories, you know, like hopefully people were able to extrapolate some learnings from them. I know they will. I know I have. But, you know, if given this opportunity, you know, what are some of the things that you would like to say to the badass Asian dude community and um, you know, I wanted to give the floor over to you as, you know, whatever you feel like saying. Well, you had mentioned something. There's two points to that. Uh, you had mentioned that we all can be more than just one thing. And I really think that's what the main theme of all of this, if I can encapsulate all of that together. So when I was in med school, I said it was, I would rather fail out knowing I was still a good person and still Calvin's son than try to be a good doctor. Uh, I'd rather fail out knowing that I did everything and to my best of my ability without sacrificing my humanity rather than, than quitting without ever knowing what I was meant to be. So fail me out. And every time I failed out, they pulled me back in and I just kept doing it. And I realized even that experience was part of who I was. Just keep pushing until you can't push any further and maybe take the alternative path. alternative path. I made it a thing to always make a habit of embracing the uncomfortable. And that's what makes Asian, that what, and that is what I realized that can make an Asian and American man threatening. Those of you who are listening right now, you are, and you can be that badass person, intimidating, threatening force in, or, you know, game changer, what do you want to call it? Disruptor within your field. If you are being yourself, because the only way that they, I mean, the institutions status quo will win is they're able to successfully box you in as just another Asian American doctor, just another Asian American entrepreneur, just another Asian American break dancer, just an Asian guy. But if you become yourself, it becomes very hard to box you in because you know, I'm a bartender, but I'm also a doctor. I've also run a travel blog and I you know, have an Instagram following and I also like, you know, do one on push-ups and you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I'm, I know I'm flexing, sorry for those of you listening, but this is, we're with three dudes right now. No, 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 yes, yes, please. But like, I do all those things for the, you know, because I love doing them, but also realized it had an added effect of being disrupting for people trying to fit me in somewhere, but they couldn't. So they just, most of the time, people like to do whatever is easier, which is they'll just, whatever, give up and say, that's Calvin, that's Calvin. And that's when you start getting things like, he's Calvin, he's not like with the rest. But if you have every Asian American guy act like that, then we real, then they start realizing, no, there's no such thing as one stereotypical Asian guy that can be boxed in. We need numbers. We need more people like me. I'm not that special. I'm not the smartest or the strongest guy in the room. I'm not the hardest working, right? The people who survive the apocalypse or the onslaught of institutions and tragedies and traumas of society are the most flexible and adaptable. I learned all those things, you know, because I wanted to be able to survive an apocalypse no matter when, where, or what. And you can hone on that and become more yourself. What do you want to do, regardless of those influences? Then you're the disruptor. Then you could be your own unique person. And you don't have to be angry at an external influence pushing you to be this or pushing you to be that because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to box you in. Oh, he's just another Asian guy who's angry at the world and just pissed off about everything. Or 
he made a name for himself and I can't really quite box him in. And then, and then finally with myself as a, I'm still a doctor. So my dad on paper, if he raised, oh, okay, I'll make him a doctor. If he's up there or wherever and his energy of spirits is like, oh, he became a doctor. He's checking in 10 years later. Great. No, it's, it's not great for him if he had found out how I became a doctor. And that's the point. I'm happy how I became a doctor. I'm not my father's doctor. I'm not Asian American's doctor. I'm not, you know, the perfect little doc Asian guy that became a doctor that got boxed in. I still became a doctor, but I can look back on a story where I've been to 190 countries and territories in the last 10 years with a huge community, still, you know, maintaining my humanity, my sanity, and having all these stories behind me and doing all the other things we haven't yet talked about, right, behind me. I still became a doctor with all those things. And it's really, if you can like see that, my graph was like, eventually I got to the point. My story wasn't, I studied really hard and I became a doctor. The end result is always the same, but it's not the destination that matters as so much the journey. So for those of you listening, it's not about what you become, it's how you become that person. Because that's what matters more. So what, regardless if you can become an artist or you rebel and become a writer or you become a doctor or you give in and all that shit, like, I don't give a fuck what, what you do. It's, do you have a stereotypical story on how you got there? And you look back and say, like, no, I did it my own way. That's what matters. And I don't care if my dad doesn't like the way I became a doctor. I did it my own way. And I'm now happy. I'm, a, I'm the person I never wanted to be, which is a doctor. But I'm happy because I chose the story. I chose how do I want to be the doctor. It was within my choice and it's my story. And no one can take that away from me. Well, this is just part one of an epic story. We got to get you back on this, Calvin. Like relationships, man. I wanted to talk about that for so long. Like, you know, just the, what my girlfriend has put up with me in the last five years. I was polyamorous for a few years. I, you know, yeah, I did a lot of, I, I have a lot of thoughts about what it means to be in a happy relationship. Sex uh, episode continued. Yeah. Okay, we'll get you back on for sure. American sex and sexuality. All, what we talk about with eight men coming in and doing only feminine jobs, like that, World War II, like post-colonialism, all that plays in a role on how we view ourselves as sexual creatures. I wish we, I was looking forward to talking about that when you said that Brandon was coming on. But emotional intelligence too, Victor, you know, that's, I mean, that's a bigger Venn diagram, but we, we can do this all day, man. Yeah, we, we, we will, we will. And, you know, I, I have Mother's Day stuff. Otherwise, I, I would love to continue so bad. I, you know, like it, it's the one thing that I, unfortunately, you know, over podcasting, I love my moms, you know, so got to spend some time with mom. But, you know, um, I really appreciated everything you shared. I mean, doing things for yourself, that's so important. You know, one of the things that I've discovered recently was that, you know, I'm a CEO because I wanted my dad's approval, you know, and that's not the only reason, but that was a large reason. And understanding that a large reason I became a CEO also freed me because I no longer need to be a CEO for the rest of my life. You know, I could go do other things that make Sabo happy. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know Victor has a lot of thoughts in these areas. Victor, do you want to do you want to close it out with a, a nice little summary? You're so eloquent with these types of things. <laughs> no, I will appreciate you thinking that. But um, no, Calvin, I really appreciate it. I think there's a lot to, to take out of, you know, all those bits and pieces. And, and it's, again, like really embracing to just go after it and, and also at the same time diversify, you know, your experiences you know, that's what I actually wanted to ask is like, you know, you, you think of this, you think, oh, this is a doctor. And, you know, that's the focus. And you like have 
that's the one thing you do that it requires so much of your time. Like, how do you even have time to travel, to start a business, to like, you know, do all these different things, even have a relationship. And I think it's, um, you know, based on what we hear, it's, it's really, you know, gotta, you just have to go and do all these experiences. I think it's, you know, stopping yourself from like overthinking, um, which I think maybe a lot of people will fall under. So, yeah. um, your I choice. mean, yeah. Go, I, yeah, go ahead. And no, as a, as an ER doctor, I just want to clarify. I think there's one thing untied is I'm still that bartender, right? I, it's all circle theory. I'm a per diem ER doctor. I'm per diem only. And I, if we can just trend, maybe do a segue to relationships or to the sequel, uh, just like relationships, I don't marry you on the, after the first date, maybe that worked in another generation or different, you know, community, but I don't, I personally will not marry you on the first date. I need to kind of date around, see what works for me. And I felt that applied to getting a job after I graduated residency. After one hour interview, I'm not going to sign a full-time contract. That just didn't seem right to me. And that self-awareness of like how I dated and how I pursued relationships and then the way I even did anything in life, which is like the many different jobs I've had. It was not one thing that I want to just do it all for the rest of my life. So when it came to picking jobs and as a doctor, I decided to say yes to every hospital system in New York saying, you know, let me work per diem a little bit everywhere, help out wherever I can do the best possible thing that maybe had to do with my previous life as, you know, trying polyamory for one or two years in New York. But, um, right. Just right. It was just, I'm happy because I now work within my schedule and that answers what Victor was at, you know, wondering that's how I get to travel three to four weeks at a time for the last two to three years and trying to see every country in the world while on top of that, being able to have a relationship and then working anywhere and any time on my own terms. Yeah. You, you, and that's again, like you created that option C for yourself, right? Like everybody thinks like you got to do A or B, but you, you create your own. And, and I love that. And also wanted to end with like, really appreciate your service and for the work you've been doing, especially in New York and everything that's happening right now. So um, so thank you for that as well. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for like so long because it's, I'm just, I might, no, you're wrong. Like my life seems perfect, but it's really been like relatively personal problems. It's confining because in a quarantine lockdown, I, I, I want to live up to, you know, what I see myself. So I'm not going to go out and fucking break the rules. People get upset at me for that. And also don't believe in, I don't want to increase that risk for myself and my family. I can't travel. Usually by now I'll be traveling and there's no work for me because all the patients' volumes are down. So they have to give preference to their full-time contracts because they have to have minimum hours. So I'm literally wasting away without any social interactions or conversations <laughs> like me to feed my soul. Usually I'll be parking out with a hookah and a street corner, you know, at a cafe, just having people drop by the whole day and just talking like this. But hookah is, looks irresponsible. Going outside is irresponsible. Traveling is irresponsible. So this is like the new challenge. You know, what do I do with my time? And so things like this. So you just know that I'm, you think that I'm helping you with content, but you're also helping me by keeping me alive with this. So know that you're also saving some lives out there. <laughs> Glad we could be that for you. Yeah. Sure. Yes. The badass Asian dudes, we bring that social nutrition. Um, and yeah, you know, thank you, Calvin. You know, like I, I do believe like a lot of this is, is bi-directional, you know, you help us, we help you. And maybe even omnidirectional, you know, because 
the people that listen to this will be really touched and affected. And yeah, you know, like I said, I, I'm super, super happy that we chose you as our first guest back. You know, this is the Badass Asian Dudes podcast. We're trying to make Badass Asian Dudes great again, you know. So thank you for being the first one to set this off. And yeah, the next episode we have you on, let's definitely talk about the sex and relationships. Let's talk about some of those additional tangents. And yeah, thank you very much for everything that you've done, how you've represented yourself, how you've lived, you know, that authentic life that you wanted to live. And I think all of us could could learn from that. You know, I know I'm going through that right now and hopefully, you know, we'll have more stories to share. And yes, um, another one of the things that is, I know you're very social and we have a bunch of little get togethers. So we'll make sure we invite you to these get together. Sometimes we rap, sometimes we just talk and sometimes we just cry, but it's always a good time. So thank you very much, Calvin, Brandon, Victor, any last words from you two for Calvin? Yeah, I want to plug that we're doing a sex and relationship and psychedelics panel. So we definitely want you to at least participate, Calvin. So we're going to have sex and relationship coaches come and like talk about some stuff with bad. So we that's that's my thing. I, I'm, I'm a little more liberal. I'm more about like loving yourself uh, and being OK with mistakes. What if some people throw mistakes? Totally. People like, <laughs> we'll get you. We, we will get you talking. Yeah. OK, great. All right. Hey. We're going to put together a little group after this and we'll coordinate our next discussion. And yeah, Calvin, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you, man. Uh, yes, yes. All right. Happy Mother's Day to all and uh, be safe out there. <laughs>